Now, David and I like to run. In fact, he may have just finished a 50-miler this weekend. Many of our friends are also kind of into running. This is just my way of saying that this podcast might be a teensy bit longer than usual. So, are we ready? Set? Then let's go. Welcome, folks, to another episode of our Two Scientists podcast, which I get to record from my lovely hometown of London. Um, we're here today with Professor John Brewer from St. Mary's University. How are you, John? Yeah, very good, thank you. Yeah, excellent. Um, thank you for coming out to meet us, particularly because all of the people who are going to be here today for this podcast recording are very keen runners, and so I have to make sure this doesn't turn into an act of self-indulgence, yeah, just okay, fine. Yeah. trying to improve our own yeah. training. Um, but yeah, so why don't you start off by telling us how you got into this particular research field? Um, I was lucky enough to go to Loughborough University back in the 1980s when Seb Coe was also at oh, Loughborough. Wow. Yeah, so it was yeah. a great time, a great era for British running. Um, I went there as a county level middle distance runner and very quickly um, became aware of the fact that that meant nothing at a place like Loughborough where you've got Seb who was an Olympic gold medalist and many other top athletes. So rather than um, immerse myself in the, the running at Loughborough, which I still just did recreationally, I got much more involved in the science behind running because mm-hmm. I was studying sports science and was fortunate to get involved in the sports science lab at Loughborough, which was one of the preeminent research labs in the country um, at the time and indeed still is now and was fortunate to be offered the chance to do a a postgraduate degree there by Professor Clyde Williams and and Clyde and I still keep in contact and he's a great mentor and and friend of mine and very privileged to have worked with him and known him and this was in the early 1980s when the marathon boom was just starting Mm -hmm. in the UK indeed in, in the world and I was very lucky that Clyde was able to get funding from the confectionery company Mars yes who at the time were the sponsors sponsors of the London Marathon to investigate the science behind the nutrition of marathon running and the mm-hmm. hydration of marathon running, um, and in particular the impact of carbohydrates on running. And if you think today we all very much take for granted that carbs are critical for running. In fact, in the early 80s, the only research on carbohydrate had really been with cycling studies. Right. Um, and a lot of people have made the leap from cycling to running. And Mars wanted to say, well, we'll see whether that could also impact on, or the, the, car, the, the cycling studies could impact on running. Mm-hmm. So we did a couple of fairly landmark studies looking at the impact of carbohydrate on endurance running performance. And that's what in effect sparked my interest in both the science of marathon running, endurance running, sports nutrition. And at the same time, because I was being funded by the sponsor of the London Marathon, it was very easy for me to get a place in the London Marathon. So How I, I, very yeah, handy. Yeah. So I did the 84, 85 and 86 London Marathons. Um, and that then became a, a major area of interest for me. I had a, a little bit of a, of a kind of a running break as such, although I never stopped running because I was fortunate to go and work for the Football Association mm-hmm. um, as a sports scientist working in English soccer, football, yep. which was one of the first appointments of its kind, if not the first appointment of its kind in the UK. Uh, went to the 1990 Soccer World Cup with the England team as their sports scientist. Um, did a lot of work at a place called Lillishall, Lillishall National Sports Centre in Shropshire, where I moved to from Loughborough and was lucky to run my own sports science lab for nearly 20 years yep. at, at Loughborough. Um, did a bit, carried on running, did a little bit more running, did the 1997 London Marathon, and then came to work down here in London for GlaxoSmithKline, the big uh-huh. pharmaceutical yep. company, 
looking after the Lucozade Sport brand, and Lucozade Sport is an isotonic sports drink. Um, they also, coincidentally, were a sponsor of the London Marathon, uh-huh. um, albeit not the headline sponsor. And from 2002 onwards, really, I have done the marathon, London Marathon, that is every year, bar one year. So it's been a case of combining my interest and love of running, and I still run regularly over shorter distances, with the scientific interest in endurance running, uh, carbohydrate, and just the science of marathon running. And was lucky to be asked by Bloomsbury uh, about two years ago to write a book on the science of marathon running, Run Smart, which was published back in September. Uh-huh. So that's kind of a whistle-stop tour of the, of the, the journey um, that's combined a love of running with the science of running and, you know, I guess an involvement uh, in the sport and very much get pleasure from advising people on how to improve their performance or how to train for marathons. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I always believe that if you could understand a little bit about what goes on within the body when you're training, recovering and preparing for a marathon and indeed running a marathon, that will help with the training and preparation as well. Yeah, it sounds like a dream job. It is. I mean, I combine that with my genuine day job, mm-hmm. which is as pro-vice-chancellor at St Mary's University. So I'm in charge of what we call global engagement, which is um, all of our international relations, uh, the marketing, recruitment and so on. So I kind of have that um, daily routine. Before you walked in, uh, I was just reading my papers for a big meeting on Monday morning, the senior mm-hmm. management team meeting, where the word running, I can guarantee, will not appear <laughs> at all, both you know during the meeting, in the papers or whatever. So... Um, I think one of the things when you work in academia, particularly as a professor, is that you you can go down a a kind of a management route where you retain your academic field of interest, Mm -hmm. but at the same time you have a a strategic input into the day-to-day running of St. Mary's University, which is is what I love doing as well. Yeah, well, like I say, I think you're very, very lucky to be able to be doing all the things that you get to do. And at the same time, you have this major advantage in doing something that you love, i.e. the running, Mm. because you know the science behind it. But that's actually a very good point. So how many people must flick open to a Runner's World article and see that someone's published something that somebody did with five people on a treadmill and are now making huge claims? How many of those kinds of Poor science stories do you see? Oh, it's, it's horrendous. Um, you get the internet is a wonderful thing, mm-hmm. and you know I can think back 30 years and there was no internet, um, and it, it, all the advances that it's brought in terms of networking, sharing of knowledge is fantastic. But it also results in a lot of people um, being able to make claims, publish material that is not authenticated at all. Now, if you look at um, any scientific study that's published in a peer-reviewed journal. Normally, if you're reporting statistical significance, you need that 95% confidence level, which by definition means that 5% of most findings will actually be incorrect because your 95% confidence level means that you're 95% certain that 95 times out of 100, you've got genuine data. Five times out of 100, it also means that you'll have data that is perhaps by chance. But unfortunately, what will happen is that people will, will jump or grab hold of that 5% sensational claim that is different to everything else and say, whoa, look at this. I found that carbohydrates have no... Well, there's a study that finds that no carbohydrates have no impact on running performance at all, and they sensationalise it, and then people grab hold of it and they believe it. And so really, you have to be so careful because it's very easy for people to publicise non-verified claims or to latch on to the one in 20 
paper that is different from the other 19 yeah. and sensationalise that. And then people seem to buy, by definition to believe it. Um, so I'm very much of the opinion that, yes, open to new ideas, mm-hmm. open to new ways of thinking, new ways of doing things, but always, always ask the question about whether this is genuine, whether it's verified. And I've, I've mentioned... Clyde Williams, who was my mentor, and Clyde always used to say to me, when somebody makes a claim that you don't, you're not quite sure about, ask them to explain the mechanism that's mm-hmm. behind it. Because if they can explain the mechanism, then that normally means that there might be some credibility. If they can't explain the mechanism, yeah. and it's, well, we found this, but we don't really know why it happened, mm-hmm. then that often means it happened by chance, or they have no real understanding. So if you can get a genuine bit of feedback on the mechanism, the biochemistry, the, the physiology, whatever it might be, then that can give you the credibility that you, you you might be looking for to see whether something is justified. But of course, when there is a one-off, that's, that's a different one, what you also want is people to have the courage to say, well, okay, there is this finding, it's different from all the others, but let's now question it, challenge it, and look for further studies that will either confirm or deny what, what's happened. So I think part of the problem is that there are some things that will suit certain people and some things that won't. For example, um, a not too recent fad was the the whole barefoot running campaign. Mm, Now, while I think for certain people it was important for them to shift away from maybe doing a lot of heel striking, the point is that uh, a lot of people go out, they pick up on something because it's been pushed to them as being, oh, this is the next best thing. Mm. Everybody's been doing it wrong up until now. Um, Look at regular humans, like we used to run without shoes all this time ago. And then they promptly injure themselves. My, my wife works about two miles away from here at the London Foot and Ankle Centre. Uh-huh. And she tells the story that, that many of her consultants make an absolute fortune from runners who come in with broken metatarsals because they've um, thrown out their normal running shoes, mm-hmm. gone straight into barefoot or minimalist shoes, and suddenly, bang, something's happened and gone wrong. Um, and again, it comes back to the comment I've just made about being open to new ideas and, and new ways of doing things. I'm not saying there isn't a place for barefoot or minimalist running, but I think you have to look at the individual for whom that would work. And if somebody is a novice, who is perhaps a little bit overweight, who hasn't done much running before, if they suddenly set off on a training program with barefoot or minimalist shoes, it's common sense, not science, to suggest that that is likely to put them at greater risk of injury than somebody who is perhaps a more seasoned runner, who has developed the conditioning, the strength, the resilience within the muscles, the tendons, um, and indeed the running style at a lower body fat percentage that will minimise impact anyway. So I think there is a place for two. I think perhaps, dare I say it, the mistake that some of the minimalist and barefoot people made at the outset was by saying, this is the only way of doing things, as opposed to, this is, an, this is another alternative yeah. in addition to the standard shoes and footwears that, footwear that you would get in a running shop. And I think it, there are people for whom it will work, for whom it will be beneficial and who they will um, find it absolutely fine. But without any shadow of a doubt, there are those people, there are people who will be at risk of injury for, for whom it won't work. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, one of the key things you would probably recommend to a new runner is to take things very easy. Like, just don't push yourself to do something yeah. very quickly. I mean, if you look at the very the, the basic principles of, of any training program, it, it's, it's overload and progression. Mm-hmm. And so you need to be overloading the body to a level that is more than it would normally be used to. So if you are normally just used to being a couch potato, 
most movement you make is to get up and turn the TV channel or go up to bed and you perhaps walk a little bit. You need to start your running very slowly. And that mm -hmm. actually is walking, literally walking before you can run. Yep. And then working out, you know, how long can I walk for briskly? Can I intersperse a bit of running with that and gradually build up? Not be tempted to set off and suddenly run loads of distance at a high intensity uh, right from the outset. So it's building up gradually, mm -hmm. allowing the body time to... to condition to strengthen um, to, to the, the, the extra stresses that it receives from running and then to just do a little bit more every week with it's a little bit more mileage a little bit more intensity but if you kind of think oh it's new year or whatever it might be this is it I'm going to go out and run 10 miles find an old pair of training shoes from the bottom of the wardrobe put them on and go out for a run the chances are you've done too much too soon and I know that's obvious stuff that, that people um, still relate but sometimes the tried and tested and obvious stuff with a bit of science behind it is just as good if not better than some of the more fad, fad ideas that come along uh, every so yep. often so speaking of christmas and new year are you yeah. one to overindulge i think we all enjoy ourselves at christmas um i, I i'm our family is slightly um over challenged in that my wife and i have birthdays within 10 days of christmas itself so five days either side um, so what with that and a couple of teenage daughters um, there is always that temptation to do a little bit too much so yes we do and I'm also very much of the belief that if you are a regular exerciser or indeed a regular runner you can afford to overindulge a little bit because of course if you carry on running you burn up the calories and one of the benefits that I've just found with the, the recent Christmas break is that I've had much more time to go out and run and exercise than I would do with a normal working week where I'm up early on the early morning train and, and get back relatively late. So Christmas is a time, yes, for increasing your energy intake, but also a good time to increase your energy output. And I went out for a run on Christmas Day morning, um, not that far, just sort of two, three, three or four miles, knowing full well that that was just going to burn up a few extra calories that would give me a, the opportunity for a little bit more Christmas pudding or a bit, a little bit more brandy <laughs> butter on the Christmas pudding. So I think it is a time for relaxing. And, and certainly um, you could argue, and I would argue very strongly, that um, if you are somebody who exercises and runs, you do have more excuse to overindulge than somebody who does nothing. So mm -hmm. I, I think runners should, it's probably a time of the year where runners really can be a little bit smug and say, <laughs> yeah, we're in a good place. Um, normally, the rule of thumb that I use is that for every mile you run, you burn about 100 to 120 calories. Uh, and that obviously depends on your, your running economy and your, your body mass and your running style. But by and large, that's a good ballpark figure. So if you run five miles, you can probably afford to, to take in an extra five or six hundred calories, which is a reasonable slice of Christmas pudding or a couple of roast potatoes or a piece of turkey or whatever. Um, and it's, it's a, you know, we also forget that when you put on weight, it always happens because you have taken in more energy than you have expended. And, and people are always looking for excuses. And I saw a poster today when I was walking, walking in um, saying, you know, lose weight forever with this particular diet well you'll never lose weight forever because you can lose weight but if you yo-yo back by uh, taking in more energy after you've got the weight weight loss that weight will soon pile back on again so it's just a case of making sure that energy intake equates to energy expenditure and it's that energy expenditure that you can change by running and by exercise that's really important yeah which makes a lot of sense yeah. i mean it's like the amount of fuel you put into a car is going to mm. determine how far that car yeah. runs yeah. And it's the same for people very much so yeah it is um and you know that's why you just need to be careful around snacking and taking in too much extra but at the same time if you work on the 100 to 120 calorie per mile 
room, it does help you work out what you can take in. Or indeed, if you look at it the other way, what you need to have in order to fuel your training and fuel your racing. And there are a lot of people, particularly very serious runners, who I'm afraid will be the opposite end, and they all, they all take in too little energy mm -hmm. because they're obsessed about their body fat percent, percentage, um, and they'll forget that you do need energy in order to fuel your running. And if you're somebody who's running, you know, 60, 70 miles a week, that's seven, eight thousand calories mm -hmm. on top of your normal metabolic rate that you need to take in. And bear in mind as well that when you've finished a run, um, your metabolic rate will still be fairly high for a period of time after the run, yep. um, depending on the intensity and the duration of the run, so that can impact on your energy expenditure as well. Yeah, so there are a bunch of questions actually that will yeah. tie into both food and drink and um, energy expenditure. But before we do that, for the people who are a little bit more experienced, what would you say are kind of major considerations for them to try and improve their running? For example, um, the style of shoe that they wear, which yeah. heart rate range they should be running in. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll slightly diversify a little bit and then come back to that. I think one of the things for me is that, that if you want to improve, it's a case of looking at the, very often it's the intensity of your training where you can get, get those be benefits. I think it's very easy to get into a rut where you just do mile after mile. So making sure that you do at least one, if not two, high intensity sessions a week where you're training at that lactate threshold, pushing your body just that little bit harder, whether it's a a shorter run at a high intensity or higher intensity interval sessions within the run that will really start to produce the benefits and develop your oxygen uptake capacity or your ability to tolerate lactic, lactic acid for, for longer and at a higher level. Hill sessions, for example, I went out on New Year's Eve. It was so beneficial. I could, I could feel the, the difference, the fatigue firstly in my legs for 24, 48 hours afterwards. And when you feel that sort of fatigue for the first time for a while, it starts to tell you that you've done something mm -hmm. that has been different and has been beneficial. So hill training, interval training, strength and conditioning work will all help to get that extra little margin of improvement from your performance. Um, if you go back to, to the sort of, um, if you like, the use of technology, I'm a little bit wary about people getting obsessed with heart rate training. I think over the years we've seen the advent of heart rate monitors and people knowing what heart rate zones are. I think very often you can become a slave to your heart rate monitor mm -hmm. if, if you're not careful. And certainly in, in the book that I wrote, Run Smart, I did quite a lot of, about saying use, rate, use heart rate monitors to give you a feel for your body, to help you understand um, what low intensity training feels like, what higher intensity training feels like, but don't become a slave to them. And for, if you look back, you know, heart rate monitors have probably been accessible for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. now. An awful lot of people ran extremely well at an extremely high level long before heart rate monitors ever became became popular. Um, so yes you can use them and bear in mind as well that, that heart rate will vary from one person to another and you know I mentioned that um, sadly I had a birthday last week and knowing the age that I'm at now I know full well that my heart rate trace and heart rate profile is very different to how it would have been 30 years ago because mm -hmm. my maximum heart rate will have, will have slowly dropped as I've, as I've got older. So you need, if, if you just read a book which says this is the heart rate zone for aerobic training is 150 to 170, whatever it might be, that might hold true generally for people of a certain age, of a certain level of fitness, but it actually could be very different for you as an individual. So don't get obsessed by it. Um, use it as a guide and, and the other way you can use heart rate monitors is, is as a feel for if there's something that's not quite right so if you if you do a run let's say seven minute miling eight minute miling 
and you know that your heart rate would normally be 160, yep. and all of a sudden you're going out and it's 170, 175, that's a bit of a warning sign that there might be a virus or illness or overtraining yep. that, that's coming on. So I'm moderately wary mm-hmm. about heart rate monitors and overuse using them. And I've seen so many people, you know, I ran with somebody doing the London Marathon a few years back, who was forever looking at their heart rate monitor yep. and trying to adjust their pace according to their heart rate. No, just forget about it, park it, focus on your running, how you feel, and focus on the pace that you feel you need to be going at, yep. rather than getting too obsessed with, with heart rate. Yes. So that actually answers my friend James Cliff's question. James, if you're listening, just pay attention to your body rather than your yeah, heart rate, yeah. I guess is a simple answer. And also I feel a bit vindicated because I've tried using these things and I just, it's, it's just annoying because yeah. I think while I'm running, I know I get to a point where, okay, my heart feels like it's going too fast. So we live in Tampa where the hill training is almost impossible yeah, for yeah. one thing. Yeah. And secondly, obviously the weather gets incredibly hot. And David has a resting heart rate of about 50, so mm. his probably doesn't go up very much. Me standing in the heat before a run, my heart rate will go up to 100. Yeah. And so I didn't know whether I should be freaking out about this or whether I should just take it with a pinch well, of salt. That's, that's a really great comment, and it probably leads me down into another uh, really interesting sciencey bit, I suppose. Um, and that is that heat has a real impact on, on heart rate. And again, that's another reason why if you become too too guided by your heart rate, it, it can really distort things. Because of course, what happens when we run is that our body produces energy, mm-hmm. but as a byproduct of energy, you also produce heat. And that heat will accumulate and your core temperature will rise very rapidly. And in fact, most runners' core temperature would probably reach boil, boiling point by about 10 miles into a run if we didn't have an efficient heating yeah. mechanism. Or in so my heat, case, it feels heat, like yeah. I get there in two. <laughs> heat, sorry, I should say heat loss mechanism. Yes. So the heat loss mechanism, by and large, is sweating. And it's it's the evaporation of that sweat from the skin out into the environment that causes the latent heat to be lost and, and core temperature to be maintained. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second heat loss mechanism is through the proper heat loss of from the hot blood out into the environment, the convection of heat, conduction of heat from the skin out into the environment. And the body does that by diverting blood from the core yeah. and from the muscles out to the skin. That's why we tend to start going red mm-hmm. and, and, and glowing when we when we get hot. And that's a normal defense mechanism. Um, so, what in a sense, if you, if you can imagine the heart pumping away when you're running, and it's pumping away thinking, right, I'm sending blood to the muscles because the, the blood is needed to provide oxygen for energy. That's all fine. It's pumping away at a nice rate. Then all of a sudden in the background, the, the heat is going up and up. Mm-hmm. And suddenly a, a sense, the sensors are, are kicking in saying, just a minute, cool temperature is rising. Sweating on, it, on its own isn't keeping cool. We need to start sending blood to the muscles. And so the heart, instead of being told to work even harder, because the, the capillaries and the blood vessels towards the skin are dilating, blood is going up. So the heart rate is having to go up in order to supply two needs, the muscles and the skin. And that's why you see a gradual um, thermal-induced increase in heart rate, both when we're standing at rest in the heat, but also when you're exercising mm-hmm. in the heat. And so we know from lots of scientific studies that you'll see a much higher heart rate uh, in hot conditions at the same pace yep. than you will in colder conditions. It's well documented. What you do find is that as runners start to adapt and what we call acclimate to the heat, mm-hmm. so that heart rate will, will gradually 
come down and they'll be able to tolerate the heat much more effectively. But certainly on early exposure, a much higher heart rate because simply there is an extra dem demand being placed on the on the heart when you're when you're exercising in the heat. Yeah, I have to say uh, the current temperatures right now in Tampa are around freezing, which most of my friends are complaining about. But for me, is perfect running weather. Yeah, yeah. I mean, between that and 10 degrees Celsius and being bundled up. Um, just means that my heart and head don't want to explode. Well, again, some of my, my colleagues at St Mary's University have done studies where they found that the optimal temperature for marathon running is around 8 to 10 yeah. degrees Celsius. Um, that's warm enough for the muscles to function mm -hmm. properly and you're, and you're not freezing cold. At the same time, it's not so hot that you will have a, a really big thermal challenge. Um, and one of the biggest challenges in endurance running is the loss of heat, being yeah. able to cope with the heat that the body is generating and to maintain um, that, that thermal regulate, thermoregulation at core temperature and to do so without becoming dehydrated. Mm. Because of course, as I've yeah. already mentioned, sweating is, is the number one defense mechanism. But to continue sweating at the rate that is needed to offset the heat that's generated for two, three, four, five hours is a real uh, hydration challenge. And that's why you know, it's quite commonly said that the, the two biggest threats to performance in endurance uh, running are a loss of energy and a loss of fluid. Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue that if you look at the science, the loss of fluid is a much earlier challenge mm -hmm. than the loss of energy. And for most people, as long as you've eaten properly, the loss of energy is probably an issue from sort of 18, 19, 20 miles onwards, mm -hmm. providing you've eaten properly beforehand and providing you paced yourself effectively. Whereas if you look at the sort of high sweat rates that you can get in both hot and humid conditions, um, and, and you know that around sort of 2% of body weight, once you start to lose more than that, your, your physical and mental performance starts to suffer, and that you'll see sweat rates of perhaps two, three liters an hour in hot and humid conditions, well, two or three liters an hour is, is two to three kilos an hour. That's way above 2% of body mm -hmm. weight for a lot of people. So within an hour to an hour and a half of running, you can have a dehydration challenge, whereas it's probably more likely to be two to three hours of running before you have an energy challenge. So it's really important that people are aware of the science behind the hydration challenge or the dehydration challenge and the energy challenge and realise that staying hydrated can be much more of an issue or an earlier challenge anyway than, than the loss of fuel. So that follows in rather nicely to a general question we had from Erin from our Tampa All Out Running Group who just asks about hydration in general. So she consumes a lot of water because she yeah. needs to for other reasons. Um, but she said, so how many people do you suppose are dehydrated? How much should we be doing without exercise to make sure that we're not um, under-functioning when it actually comes to running? So yeah. while we're, not while we're running, so. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of studies that show that, the, you know, if you're just looking around the, the coffee shop here, there's probably a lot of people that perhaps have, have coming out of work, they've maybe had a, few glasses of wine last night, maybe actually starting the day dehydrated. We, we've certainly done studies where we've seen that people who, towards the end of the day, we've been working in air-conditioned offices, haven't drunk that much fluid, um, gone to the gym of an evening to do a workout after, after their work, already dehydrated. So I think there is more that people can do. Um, I think we have to look at the, the body's most natural way of rehydrating, which is water, which is perfectly fine. I think there's a lot of um, manufacturer-led hype around particular drinks and products that you can use to rehydrate. I think they absolutely have a value in sport when it's endurance sport, but for day-to-day -day activity and you know, seeing somebody here just in front of us pouring out a glass of water, a great way of staying hydrated. Um, making sure you top up your fluid stores 
But again, coming back to comments around individuality, it will depend on individuals, your body size, how much fluid you need to drink. I know there are some studies that suggest that two litres of water is about the, the right amount. Well, that might work for somebody who's 90 kilos, um, 80, 90 kilos, but if you're 40 or 50 kilos, that might be too much. And of course, you mentioned the, the, the cooler conditions in Tampa. I have to say, I, I don't feel too sorry for you, given that we live here in London, where um, the conditions tend to be a lot, a lot cooler than that most of, the, most of the year round, or at least not cooler than freezing, but we never have the kind of great weather that you, that you guys get. Um, Oh, you say great, but yeah. I mean it's we reach 100% humid. Yeah, humidity. Yeah, so it's humid. So, so there is there is a much greater challenge in hot and humid conditions compared to cooler, more temperate conditions. And I think you have to look at the, the, the conditions. Um, but be aware that staying hydrated for day-to-day -day life is as important as it is for sport. And without wishing wishing to be too sort of crude, it's making sure that your urine is a clear or straw mm -hmm. colour, and as long as that's the case, then you're probably not dehydrated, but if it's um, fairly dark and concentrated, then that's usually a sign that you need to take in a little bit more fluid. So, just standard water? Yes, yeah. Marvellous. Um, we actually had, so we have lots of questions about things like nutrition and so on. Um, one of the other things that's come up recently is that people are starting to shift their diet towards a more kind of vegetarian mm. or vegan and we we had the same question from two people we had liz and rob so in liz's case she says is there too much emphasis on protein uh, that you get in supplements and snacks do you think this is a a meat marketing conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> right i would actually go slightly beyond that and say that there is um again a manufacturer's led um degree of hype mm -hmm. over the importance of protein I would say it's also um, a degree of hype that is led by people who feel that by prescribing protein they can in, in, enhance their own position as personal trainers, coaches, and I'm being a little bit controversial here um, about the role of protein. Protein is undoubtedly important, but if you look at most of the scientific studies, they'll say that the, the optimum and indeed maximal amount of protein that you need is around two grams per kilogram of body weight per day for, for an individual. Um, so even if you're somebody who's 90 to 100 kilos in weight, that's around 200 grams of protein. Most people will be able to get that from their standard diet. Mm -hmm. So even if you're in heavy training and, and doing weight training, the volume of protein that you need um, is not that excessive and you can get it to a large extent from your diet. That said, there are studies that have shown that during recovery, if you combine protein with carbohydrate, you get enhanced uptake of the carbohydrate that helps in post-exercise recovery to replace the muscle glycogen that's yep. been used. Um, but protein on its own will not suddenly cause you to get a big six-pack to get <laughs> muscle strength and conditioning. You have to... The main stimulus for that and, and the build-up of, of protein comes from the overload, the training, the hill sessions that I mentioned, the high-intensity mm. sessions, the strength and conditioning sessions that you do. And yes, having some protein, and perhaps, you know, again, the suggestion that 20 grams of protein within the hour or two after exercise will help that repair and muscle-building process. There is some fact to that. But 20 grams of protein is not that much. Mm -hmm. you, you don't necessarily need to have 
or spend a lot of money on a protein shake, yeah. you can get that from your normal your normal diet. And even yeah. a vegetarian diet. It, absolutely, yeah, without any shadow of a doubt. And you know, um, if you look at a lot of the, the, the foods that vegetarians will eat and dairy products and, and nuts and so on, lots of protein in there that, that mm -hmm. can, can be really beneficial. Yeah. So. Um, kind of going on to Rob's side question, which was, he's actually seen conflicting advice on eating right after running. Mm. So he said, you know, in some places you see that you have a speedier recovery um, or that it might lessen the benefits of exercise. I think by and large, um, most people would agree that because you've used up fuel when you're running, particularly mm. glycogen, if it's endurance running, um, the first two to four hours post-exercise is, is a critical time. The, the enzyme that converts carbohydrate that you eat into glycogen is an enzyme called glycogen synthase. And that mm -hmm. enzyme is, in a sense, more active. It's raring to go in the muscles. It's ready for carbohydrate to come in and, and hit yep. it. So if you take in carbohydrate fairly soon after endurance running, the likelihood is that that will be converted to glycogen and it will enhance your recovery process. I guess as well that we have to be practical and say, if you've done a long endurance run, Maybe even have finished a marathon. Mm -hmm. The likelihood is, if I'm really honest, that recovering quickly to go for your next run is not top <laughs> of your priority list. Uh, it's how do I just, you know, get back to normal as quickly mm -hmm. as possible. So I think at times we can overemphasize the need to, to consume food. But I would say that consuming fluids so, yep. is actually very important because you will have dehydrated as well. Mm -hmm. And if you weigh yourself before and after a run, and you've lost a kilo, that's at least a litre of fluid that's yeah. been lost, and so that's, that needs to, to be taken back in. But in terms of, of food, I would suggest that carbohydrate with some protein post-run will help to replace the muscle glycogen, and the studies will show that the protein will be of some benefit, but it's not a massive amount of protein that you need to have, um, and that that will help to enhance the recovery process. But you also have to think in your own mind, what am I recovering for? Mm -hmm. And if it's the fact that you've gone out for a, an eight or 10 mile run and you want to do another eight or 10 mile run tomorrow, then again, some carbohydrate, a bit of protein will help with that recovery along with some um, some fluid to make sure that you're rehydrated yeah. as quickly and as effectively as possible. Yeah, I find that especially after a marathon, one of the last things I want to do is eat. Yeah, absolutely. I feel because, terrible. Yeah. And again, part of the reason for that, as I've already mentioned, talking about the thermoregulation, is that distribution of your blood flow has been changed. And if you look at many of the studies, they'll show that blood flow to the stomach um, is almost reduced in its entirety when, mm -hmm. you're, when you're running. So if you then try and hit the stomach with food, um, it really won't feel like doing the digesting mm -hmm. and so on. So that's why fluid is easier to digest. And indeed, if you can combine that fluid with some energy, mm -hmm. whether it's an isotonic drink or a higher carbohydrate drink, that will just help to start replace some of the energy that you've that you've expended during the run itself. Yeah. Um, so specifically on vegetarian and vegan runners, what would you say to changing your diet to accommodate that? Because, I mean, famously, one of the ultra long distance runners, Scott Jurek, mm. is a vegan. Yeah. And he clearly doesn't seem to suffer from this. No. But what would you say to, I think the average person is not Scott Jurek, so. Yeah, look, I think we have to bear in mind that if you're vegan or vegetarian, then there is a potential risk that you would reduce your protein intake. Mm -hmm. That is not absolutely critical mm -hmm. because you can still get your protein from other sources. If you were a, a zero carbs runner and you went on no carbs at all, I know Tim Noakes out in South Africa would probably slightly disagree with this, but 
if you're reducing your carbohydrate intake, that would have an impact on your running. The fact that you're vegan or vegetarian still means that you have every opportunity to take in carbohydrate. Yep. Um, whether it's through bread, through pasta, through rice, all mm-hmm. sorts of great carbohydrate sources that will fuel your running. So there should be no reason at all why vegans or vegetarians should fear their ability to train and perform well because they are vegans or vegetarians. Absolutely, that is not the case. You can get the carbohydrate in. I think the only the only caveat I would say is that if you've got, gone onto a diet which you feel is restricting your choice of foods and the volume and quantity of foods that you can consume, then you do need to be careful that you ensure that your total energy intake is sufficient to match your energy yeah. expenditure. Otherwise, if you go into continuous energy deficit, then you will gradually fatigue, you'll be, you'll be training with low carbohydrate stores, you'll be perhaps using protein within the muscle and so on to, to, to provide fuel, and that can lead to overtraining, to, to breakdown mm-hmm. and, and, and undue fatigue and so on. Okay, so another question Rob had that's kind of related to this. What he does is, for his long runs, he doesn't eat. He doesn't mm-hmm. eat before, he doesn't eat during a 27-kilometer, a two-hour-long run because... Uh, he, I guess he wants to acclimatize himself to that awful part of the marathon where you're running on empty. Is this a good idea? Sounds like he's been reading my book. That's a good <laughs> <laughs> I actually talk about that as, as an alternative way of training and conditioning the, the body to that awful part of, the, of a marathon, the last six or seven miles, when you, you could well be running on, on low glycogen levels. And the traditional thinking has always been to, to, to train for that, you need to do that horrendous long run often on your own Mm -hmm. you know get to 20 miles and possibly beyond so the body is experiencing that low glycogen running well the alternative is that you actually induce that that feeling before a run and you can do that by having a low carb diet and then going out for a run so that you're starting the run either depleted or probably partially depleted with your glycogen stores so that it means that by the time you get to seven or eight miles of the run you are at the stage where you would be 17 or 18 miles into a run if you'd had full carbohydrate stores beforehand um very possible to do i know a number of coaches i I worked with the coach back in 2002 i think it was who first suggested that to me and i thought yeah what a you know but in many ways many coaches will have adopted scientific ways of training without often realizing uh-huh. it and when you when you look at the science behind it it absolutely makes sense um so the other the other way of doing that is back-to-back long runs so most people will find that they can do their longer runs at a weekend but they're not looking forward to the 21 22 mile run on a sunday so instead a 12 13 mile run on saturday mm-hmm. low carbohydrate diet on saturday night saturday afternoon after the run and then a similar run on the Sunday, mm-hmm. but where you're starting that second run with low muscle glycogen stores, yep. is for many people a preferable way of, of getting that training um, than one long run. Now that's not to say that the, the, the long 20 mile run should be dropped altogether because there are psychological benefits for that, mm-hmm. from that. There is just that simple fact that your feet will be on the, hitting the ground yeah. consecutively yeah, yeah. for that period of time. And it's, a, it, it's really saying this is one other tool that you can use, not use it to the exclusion of the single long run, but use it in addition to, and it's a great way of, of benefiting. So, yeah, I would absolutely endorse the fact that you can use that, that type of combined low-carb, long-run mm-hmm. uh, philosophy. Just bear in mind that if you overdo it on the low-carbs, again, 
because you're reducing carbohydrate intake, you could well be reducing your vitamin, mineral intake, your energy intake. You may be um, reducing the effectiveness of your immune system, perhaps opening yourself up to more illness, infection, and so on. So just be careful that you don't do it all the time. It's yep. used as, a, as a, an occasional tool. That, and I, anybody who's listening, I would say try it and see how mm-hmm. you get on with it. That, you know, we're here to an extent talking about the science of running and training. Well, it's not an exact science mm-hmm. uh, running. It's not like engineering or physics or mechanics where you, you can produce formulae that are exactly always going to work. Yep. Running isn't the same. The human body is a, is a biological mechanism. And what works for one person, as we know from many of the genetic studies recently, yep. um, doesn't always work for everybody. And some people will respond, some people won't. Some people will be more susceptible to being able to cope with certain things mm-hmm. than others. So, yes, there is science. But it's not perhaps the objective science that you see in in, in more sort of STEM mathematical yeah. environments. Yeah. Well, it's like any form of medicine. I mean, mm. we're we're trying to push further and further towards um, something that's far more personalised yeah. to the individual, which makes complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Um, so. I, going back to the, the subject, you brought up footfalls. Obviously, yeah. you get to a point, you have to do certain long runs. So my boss, Tom, and I have spoken about this before, and he said one of the things that doesn't make very much sense to him is the fact that that last long run you do before a marathon is always recommended to be 20 or 22 miles and never beyond that. So why is it that people stop there rather than doing the full distance? Because obviously, so I did my first 50K last year. And yeah. in order to train for that, obviously, you have to go beyond yeah, yeah. that. David's yeah. done 50 miler. Yeah. Our friends are insane enough. Like, one of our friends has done 20-something hundred milers at this stage. So why is it for marathon training, these programs always say that you should stop at a certain point? You know, I think it's a great question. And I think the answer is much more is a practical one rather than a scientific one. Mm-hmm. I think uh, most of the programs tend to be aimed at people who are relative novices. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no reason at all why you shouldn't train beyond the marathon distance to enhance your marathon running performance. And I think if you were to ask many of the elite runners, mm-hmm. um, Paula Radcliffe, Mo Farah, um, and Mo, Mo's training for a marathon at the moment, um, they have the time and the resources and the ability to train over distance. Yep. I think the difficulty is that if you are your re- average recreational eight, nine minute a mile marathon runner to train at a distance that is perhaps 26 miles or beyond requires a huge amount of dedication yep. both mentally and in terms of time resource. So most programs will back away from that and it will really be a case of almost damage limitation. Mm-hmm. How far can you get that will give you the best possible chance of getting around the course? And that's why if you look at the, the fatigue, the fatigue profiles of probably 95% of people running marathons show a real drop off in runtime um, for the last five, ten kilometres of a race. Yep. It's simply because they're in uncharted territory. Yep. Um, the people who can sustain their fatigue, or when I say sustain fatigue, not fatigue, are those who have had the time and the dedication and resource to go out and to run 26, 27, 28 miles on a regular basis. All they are regular marathon runners mm-hmm. perhaps have run 40 or 50 marathons who are actually doing that sort of distance in their in their yep. training so in an ideal world you would never scientifically at all advocate running a lesser distance mm-hmm. than the distance you are intending to race at there is no benefit at all the only other thing i would add in is of course that if you've got people who are 
um, fair, relative novices, suggesting that they regularly run 26 miles or beyond in preparation for a marathon is going to expose their risk of injury. And I think I've always been one who said that just because you've done one run at 26 miles, physiologically it's not going to suddenly equip you to run 26 miles. It might have a psychological benefit yep. because you've been there and done it. Um, but it's those regular runs over that distance that will get the, the, the conditioning, the, the, the strength in the legs and so on. For practical reasons, that it's at 20 to 22 miles. Mm-hmm. The reality is if you could have an ideal world, yep. you'd probably say go over distance. And um, if you could do that, then I wouldn't... I wouldn't um, tell people not to go over distance mm-hmm. as long as they were confident that by doing so they were going to be able to recover sufficiently and not risk getting injured because mm-hmm. they've gone over distance that's the other that's the other problem yeah. and of course if, as we all know if you run 26.2 miles uh, it can often take two three four weeks at least yep. to recover from from that sort of distance so if you are going to do it make sure you give plenty of time you know, don't don't go and run 26.2 miles two weeks before and then expect yourself to be able to run a marathon mm-hmm. in two weeks' time. Unless you're our friend Chuck, who seems to run... Yeah. He only does his yeah. long runs as marathons. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and again, it comes back to individuality and what your, your body is used to. And it's it's probably the regular ultra-distance marathon runners who can just churn them out time after time. Mm-hmm. Boom, it's, it's not really a problem. But of course, you know, just the fact... And it's a great... It's, it's always a standard essay question that we would use. You know, I had when I was a student at Loughborough and we give to our students at St Mary's. It's, what, what's, what's harder? Is it harder to run a marathon in two hours, five? minutes or four or four hours or five hours time and in fact you could argue four or five hours is much much harder if you can get the things over and done with quickly that's actually much easier so it's the same with your training you know if it's going to take you five hours to do a 25 26 mile run um, that's actually quite um, off-putting mm-hmm. for your average recreational runner. If you're an elite runner, you can go out and knock it off in a couple of hours. Yep. Then you, you would do that quite regularly. Yes. Well, that's very good to know. Yeah. It's, it's one that I've wondered as well. It just it never seemed to make any sense. I guess that's because it doesn't yeah. make any no, sense. No, it doesn't. Um, so switching away from the, the running science specifically, uh, you're also associated with an anti-doping agency in the UK. I was. I, I was on the board of UK Anti-Doping for eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what we call a public appointment, yep. so you're appointed by the Minister of Sport. You can serve a maximum of two terms. I finished my second term at the end of September of 2017, so uh-huh. I was on the board for eight years uh, and have been off for two months. Oh, so very Three recently. Months. Yeah. Um, so, Fard had a question about uh, performance-enhancing drugs. So, recently... Bradley Wiggins, um, winner of the Tour de France, has been in a lot of trouble uh, with taking legal medication in an illegal manner. So what would you say to this grey area? Or do you think it's black and white? Do you think that it shouldn't be allowed? Right, it's a a massive question. Let me start by saying that um, the the World Anti-Doping Agency's banned list, WADA's banned list, is absolutely there for very good reasons. Mm -hmm. It's there because... Taking performance-enhancing drugs um, is cheating, uh, and it's also very important, as people often forget, damaging to the health of the individual who takes them. So um, anybody who is caught taking a performance-enhancing drug um, rightly will deserve the punishment that is um, given to them. And we have to have a level playing field, and we have to do whatever we can to have clean sports for, for everybody in whatever sport it might be. Um, at the same time, I think as a scientist, I'm also very aware that the difference between winning and losing in many sports is minuscule. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's a term that David to David Brailsford, who is head of British or is head of British Cycling, has termed which is marginal gains. And it's where can you get those small half a percentage points that make the difference between winning and losing? And in a sense, that's something that scientists have been trying to achieve for many, many years. And we've spoken this morning about barefoot running, we've spoken about carbohydrate, we've spoken about hydration. All of that is, could make the very small differences for some people, that are the differences between winning and losing. So inevitably, you'll get athletes who will look at how they can um, get those extra gains that will help you to win. Um, of course, some medications that are prescribed for genuine reasons, and the, and the one that most people often talk about is asthma, and the asthma inhalers that will help people with their ventilation, taking the air in and out of their lungs that's got, that's got oxygen in it. Um, and there's a case that's quite high profile at the moment, um, around an athlete who's tested positive for taking an asthma drug, a British mm -hmm. athlete. Um, and I saw somewhere that somebody said that that's not performance enhancing, it's performance enabling. Mm -hmm. Now I would really question that, because what, what do you mean by performance enabling? And if you're saying that it means that an asthmatic can get more air in and out of his or her lungs, and by de definition therefore more oxygen in and out of his or her lungs, and potentially therefore transport more of that oxygen via the haemoglobin in the blood to the muscles to convert oxygen. That isn't innate, it is enabling, yeah. but it's also enhancing. Yes. It's going to improve their performance, because without it, they couldn't improve performance. So we have to say, well, what, where do we draw the line? Now, the line is drawn at the threshold of, at which those drugs, those substances can appear within the body. Um, and athletes are very often able to take medication for genuine illnesses or injuries that, that um, can be taken with what's called a TUE, or a Therapeutic Usage Exemption form. And that TUE enables somebody who's got perhaps an injury or is recovering from an illness or has a medical condition such as asthma to legally take some banned substances up to a certain threshold. Um, I think, being slightly controversial, that we may be beginning to move into an era where we have to revisit the TUE, uh, the use of TUEs, and say, if athletes coaches, medical personnel are starting to use TUEs in a way where they aren't always fully justified and should we start to think about whether we should no longer have TUEs? Now that's quite controversial because some people would say, well okay, if I've got a genuine problem, I need a, I need a medication to help me compete. Yep. Um, but if it's also something that is being systematically abused, mm -hmm. then actually for the benefit of those people that don't require medication and who are losing out to people who are taking medication because it, they can they can work in that grey area, I would be one to say to, to protect the integrity of sport, perhaps we should revisit whether TUEs mm -hmm. are allowable or not. And, and I'm beginning, I suppose if I go back five or six years, I was very much, yeah, TUEs are there for a genuine reason. Yeah. I'm starting to sway to say, actually, if we stopped having TUEs at all, at least that would, we would all know where we stood. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it would be, a, it would be better, sad for those people that have got certain problems, but increasingly we are seeing uh, athletes with medical conditions that require medication that could, and I'm not going to get fixed on terminology, enable or enhance performance, we're seeing the number of athletes with those conditions seemingly start to increase mm -hmm. more and more 
so that those those um, medications are being taken. And I think that's something that we need to be very wary of and mindful of. Yeah. So, kind of related to this, but not quite, because it's not from a health perspective. But Fred, who uh, contacted us through Strava, he said, what about slipstreaming? Because um, pro athletes obviously run fast enough that this might actually be worth considering. So, they, these guys are running at three minutes per kilometer, but they don't seem yeah, yeah. to wear anything. No, that's right. And if you look at the, um, the, the Italian efforts at Monza on the, the two-hour marathon, which came mm. within about 25 seconds, yeah. um, Am I allowed to mention the shoe company? Oh, sure. Yeah, Nike did a lot care. of work looking at that slipstreaming <laughs> and, and, and in effect had pacemakers running in formation yes. to, to protect yeah, the, yeah, the guys yeah. who were attempting the record. And we've seen that in cycling. Um, mm -hmm. And because, as you rightly say, the speed that these guys are going at, um, every little marginal gain, as I've already mentioned, can make a difference. So I think the science behind slipstreaming absolutely stacks up. Um, it can make a difference, particularly at the highest level um, where they're looking to shave seconds. It'll make a difference at any level, you know, mm -hmm. and we know that when you're running a four or five hour marathon, if you're running in a pack on a windy day, yep. um, that, that can really help reduce fatigue. So understandably, if you're running at 13 miles an hour um, and you're running into a, even into a still wind, that's that's a resistance. Yep. If you can have that, that wind, that air broken up by somebody in front or a group of people in front, that will help. Um, I guess it depends on then the practicality of whether you are being slipstreamed by runners who are being brought in at mm -hmm. certain points in the race, as happened in the, the Italian two-hour attempt, um, or whether it's just a case of a group of runners getting together in a race to say, look, I'll help you if you'll help me, mm -hmm. and, and they're, they're dividing up the, um, the workload, in a yep. sense, which is what we see in cycling. Um, so yes, it's beneficial. Um, but if it means that there is an artificial record as a result of it, then clearly that record would never be ratified yeah. because it would mean pacemakers coming in at certain stages in a race, which, which you can't have to, to um, validate a, a genuine world record. Okay, so for those people who won't have heard about this yeah. record attempt, can you just explain yeah, what Yeah, sure. I mean, Nike um, were constructed an attempt to break what some people would say is the last great barrier in, in running, certainly in, in endurance running, which is the two-hour marathon. Um, the current record is two hours, two hours, two minutes and 57 seconds, which is Dennis Cometo. Um, so for, the, a non, for an amateur yeah. or somebody who doesn't know anything about running, can you explain how big that difference of three minutes yeah, is? Yeah, it's massive. It's nearly, <laughs> it would basically mean that in order to, to break the world record, you'd have to finish about a kilometre ahead of the current world record holder, which is a huge distance. Yeah. Um, but it's still, I think, I mean, I've said, I've done uh, radio interviews in the past where I've said, I believe it will happen. Mm -hmm. It's a case of when, not, not if. Um, but what the, 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 the Nike attempt tried to do was to bring all the science together to see if it could make it happen perhaps earlier than you might expect, yep. given the, the, the natural progression of, of the marathon world record. Um, and they looked at loads of things. They did a lot of work looking at lactate threshold, which I've mentioned earlier, which is the speed that the, the elite guys can run at where they're not accumulating lactic acid at a high level because we know lactic acid produces fatigue. They looked at slipstreaming, as mm -hmm. you've said, and, and um, they looked at the conditions that are required. So I've mentioned already 9, 10 degrees Celsius, the optimal conditions. They looked at the course that didn't have too many twists and turns in it, and they looked at the course that was flat because those mm -hmm. are obvious things that will slow people down. And then they looked at um, the optimal hydration, the optimal refueling during the race and the preparation, and of course the psychology. Um, and it was very clear quite early on that this would never be ratified because 
one of the key things that is required as things stand at the moment is good pacemaking because yep. for one individual to go out and do that on their own is going to be very very hard and so they had pacemakers in effect dropping in to the race at different stages has that immediately um, made any potential world record or any actual world record null and void um, and the, the other thing that the Nike understandably for their point of view did was look at footwear mm -hmm. and they designed a shoe that they um, are claiming has enhanced running economy it means that athletes use less oxygen at a given running speed and it gives them more energy and rebound for every stride that they take and so they brought all of those factors together and said if we can use each one to shave perhaps a you know 0.1 percent or enhance performance by 0.1 percent and that together helps us enhance it by mm -hmm. that extra that's required then we'll get the world record and I, I must admit I, I said beforehand that I didn't think it would be they would get they would break the world record and I was right but I must admit <laughs> I was surprised at how close they yep. got to it. it was within 25 seconds and for me that proves so that, that the physiology is there mm -hmm. and that one day it will certainly happen yep. um, whether they decide to have another attempt and, and contrive something that will never be ratified or whether we now start to see the world record gradually get chipped away at. but I think whether it's in the next 5, 10, 50 years, at some point the two-hour record will be broken. Um, but it requires, you know, 13.1 miles an hour running speed. Uh, I think that's four hours, 37, sorry, sorry, that's four minutes, 37 seconds per mile, something like that. Um, incredible it hurts pace. just to think yeah, about it. Yeah, I know, incredible <laughs> pace. Um, but we're not that far off it. Um, it's about, and if you look at the world record attempt, which was within 25 seconds, the, the Italian attempt, that actually is only one second a mile quicker now that, the, that somebody needs to go at to get under two hours. And it may well be that once it's done once, yep. uh, that, that mentally we'll see people think, yeah, this is achievable, and we'll see it happen more and more. Yeah. I always find it weird, these kind of progressions over time. Obviously, technology has helped more recently, but the fact that the, the human body is still able to adapt, or we're still able to achieve things by learning more through science, to, to be able to speed up is just bizarre. It is, um, and I think we will see that progression. I think we'll see the rate of progression flatten. I think what's also really interesting for me, and I can say this as somebody who's unfortunately getting uh, older and older, um, is that we're, we're seeing really great enhancement in some of the performances of older athletes mm -hmm. today. And some of the phenomenal times that 70 and 80 year old runners are starting to produce really are quite incredible. Um, there's a guy called Ed Whitlock, um, who's an elite marathon runner in, in the US, who is producing some unbelievable marathon times at around 80 years of age. Um, and what, what, is it, what is quite interesting is if you look at the, the, the world masters records for endurance running and marathon records, and the individuals who are setting them, they tend to be people who were probably quite good club standard runners mm -hmm. in their earlier days, but who just kept going and, yep. and they, they sustained their performance. And one day we might see an elite male or female mm -hmm. who decides that they still want to continue with their sport and they don't get injured and they're able to keep their mental um, sort of determination going and they carry on producing high-level performances right into their 60s, 70s and indeed 80s. And I think there is then the potential for some really incredible um, performance times to start being set amongst older people. And I think I, I did a piece of uh, sort of not, not lab-based research, but almost desktop research, where if you look at the decline in maximum oxygen uptake that you see with age, 
and you apply that to the elite people at the moment mm -hmm. and say, well, if they can sort of, if they could just have a normal rate of decline, and that will predict what their, their option uptake will be when they're 70 or 80, and they are still training and still performing. It's quite conceivable that we could see 80-year-olds breaking three hours for the World Marathon in 20, 30 years' time, yep. which, in a sense, in its own way, is just as incredible as a 25, 30-year-old breaking two hours mm -hmm. for the marathon. People do enjoy defying age as you get older. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, yep. I mean, I, I like nothing more than looking down the, the results after a race and seeing the number of senior men that I've be, beaten as a vet. <laughs> I mean, I'm currently in the vet's 50 to 60 year old category, uh -huh. and I love beating people who are, you know, in the in the senior men, younger category. But yeah, I can still still produce the odd time and performance that, that beats them, and we're all like that, you know. At the same time, I get beaten by people in the 60 to 70 year old category, which is yep. which is not so encouraging. Yes. This is a question that. Fabian and I discuss a lot about when we come to Spain, which is we run marathons, we run a few ultra marathons as well, and uh, we have friends who actually run really crazy long distances. Is running actually something that contributes positively to our health? So uh, there have been recent reports that you know running a lot of marathons increases your risk of cardiac disorders. Yeah. There have been there have been studies that show that people who've run lots and lots of miles, uh, ultra runners, may have some form of cardiac um, discrepancies, problems as a result of that. Mm -hmm. I think you have to be really honest and say that you, you can have too much of anything. Yep. And if you are somebody who regularly pushes yourself to extremes, to exhaustion, there's um, mile after mile after mile, then there is, I think, a, a good degree of evidence that that might be detrimental. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would always defer back to what is right for your average person. And, yeah. and it's very easy. Your, your first question was about, do I get frustrated about people who make claims that aren't, um, that aren't uh, probably validated and so on? Yeah. And I think it's very easy, and it's, it makes a great headline, to latch onto a story that says that somebody who's run 100 miles a week does ultra marathons, and they've done that for 20 years, has got some, as, as shown in an ultrasound, that their heart has become enlarged or, or damaged and say, there you go, that's evidence not to run. Mm -hmm. Absolutely it's not. That's one person or, or a small group of individuals out of the overall running population. So yes, you can have too much of anything, running included. But I think for 99.9% .9 of the population, sensible running or indeed exercise as part of their daily lifestyle will have far more benefits than disadvantages. And so I would never... Um, suggest that anybody should be put off from running or exercise, whether it's cycling, swimming or whatever else it might be, because of a study that shows that people who have done excessive amounts of running have had some form of heart condition. For the vast majority of people, it will be beneficial. And all of the studies have shown that you know, the heart is the most important muscle in the body mm -hmm. and that exercise that elevates heart rate will, will help improve that, that muscle and help you lose body weight, help reduce blood pressure, reduce cholesterol, reduce the risk of certain cancers, and not only improve your potential for a long life, but improve the quality of your life that you have whenever it is you finally give up your running shoes for good. Yeah, so even if you're running a lot of marathons, potentially. Yeah, and again, it comes back to, you know, I wouldn't advocate this people, somebody runs a marathon every day, but mm -hmm. there are also stories of people who have done that yes. for charity. Um, and there are some people who will run at an intensity that suits them who will do so for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, but for most people, a marathon, as I said earlier, is, is, a, is a bucket shop tick. And if running one marathon is all you ever do, um, 
Or even if you never do a marathon, it's still fine as long as you say, I've done that one marathon, but I'll then go and do 5Ks, 10Ks, or I'll go to the gym, or I'll swim, or I'll cycle, mm -hmm. or even I'll walk yeah. regularly. That's, that's the catalyst for a change in your life. You don't have to run them on a regular basis, once a day, once a week, five times a year. It's, it's, it's just something that a lot of people like to do just the once, and that's more than enough for, for many people. That's great. Three rapid fire questions. Yeah. PB. My PB for marathon is three yeah. hours, eight minutes. Uh, favorite race? The Ridgeway Running Tring. Uh, it's a cross country, off road, multi terrain um, race, about 15 kilometers, as well as the London Marathon. Of course. <laughs> favorite shoes? My favourite shoes are Oms, new brand, Swiss running shoe. Um, wore them for the first time just over a year ago. Fell in love with them. Um, extremely comfortable, very lightweight, and I use, I use them for racing and training. That's brilliant. Oh, I like those. Yeah. Those are good. Mm. Um, yeah, we wondered if that was a fad, yes, the, the yes. Oms. They, they look so gimmicky. They're great, I love them. Okay. Yeah. Well, that seems like an excellent point for us to... Um, to tap out and yeah. say thank you very much for your time today. We've really enjoyed it, and yes, thank you for inviting me. We will be getting your book. <laughs> <laughs> I said it was a bird trapped in a cage, and that is my turn to fly away. So we flew and a groove. I've been very lucky for the last few years to have run the London Marathon with various celebrities, and most of the time it's gone very well. And there's never been a massive issue, lots of motivation, what have you. And I had one particular celebrity who um, I ended up being asked to run with at fairly short notice. And I won't name him, but he's a very well-known radio presenter in, in the UK. Um, <laughs> tall, male, I'm short, um, he's young, and all the, way around the, all the way around the court, yeah. Um, there were girls asking him to marry him, you know, shouting out, and this, that, and the other. And all was going fine until we got to, there's an underpass that you go through in the London Marathon, between 24 and 25 miles. And we got into the underpass, and it's the only part of the race where there are no spectators. And he stopped. He said, I can't go on. I've, I've, I've had enough. Gee, this is the first time it's all gone pear-shaped, and we're so close to this. So I thought, this is, this is, I can now bring 30 years of, of sports science training to the fore. So I said, I'll give you, I said, I'll give you his first name. Great, great, come on. Um, there's a, there's a drink stop further on and I thought the science bit of bit of fuel even the taste of something sweet we know mm. can enhance performance so we'll get there um, have, have an isotonic drink that'll help you no no I'm, I'm giving up so I thought well okay what, what can I resort to psychology a bit more you know sports psychology yeah Greg we've, we've run 24 and a half miles it's only it's less than two miles to go you're about 90% of the way around the course focus on what you've done what you haven't done focus on the no no and I, the language started to get worse. I'm, I'm giving up here and out. Jeez, that means I'm not going to finish either. This is not good news. So I thought, what else can I try? And I remembered some of the studies which have shown that if you change your running style mm -hmm. um, as you get fatigued, so you can start to use different, different muscle fibres, uh -huh. and you might, in a sense, find a bit of muscle glycogen that was still there. Great, come on. Just change your style. Let's, let's just, you know, shorten your stride length, run slightly differently. No. And, and the language got even worse by this stage. So I'm thinking, well, this is it. I've, I've tried the, the, the physiology. I've tried the nutrition. I've tried the biomechanics. Uh, I've tried the psychology. Everything's failed. By this time, we're getting towards the end of the underpass and about to come out into the into the public again. And I said, final final throw of the dice. I said, great. I said, look, if you walk out there and you walk off the course, I said, look at them all. They've all got phones. They've all got cameras. 
It'll be on Instagram, Twitter, social media. Within two minutes, the whole world will know that you've given up and there'll be shots of you walking up. Ah, he said, I didn't think of that. <laughs> Woof, it was off. <laughs> People change that the seasons come and show you things that you never known. So I wanna thank you for this life, for giving me these wings to fly. I've become a butterfly. Oh, I have become a butterfly. So free to be whoever I like. I've become Thanks to everyone who contributed by sending us questions for this one. So our friends Liz Horridge, Fard Chowdhury, Rob Noble and James Cliff. Also to Erin and Fred for contacting us via social media. Remember folks, we're always happy to receive your comments and questions via at 2SCIS on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or Google Plus at 2Scientists or you can email us using hello at 2Scientists.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, we thank our friends Edward for joining us for this recording and the gorgeous Sophie Ford for letting us use her track Butterfly for this podcast. And naturally, thank you all for listening. For giving me these ways to fly I've become a butterfly Oh, I want to thank you for this life For giving me these ways to fly I've become a butterfly Now that I'm flying, flying high, I don't want to ever leave you behind. Cause you are my everything. So come on now and just take my hand. Let's fly away to another land. Make all our dreams come true. This life, they're giving me these wings to fly. I become a butterfly. Oh, I want to thank you for this life. They're giving me these wings to fly. I become a butterfly. Oh, I want to thank you for this life. They're giving me these wings to fly. I become a butterfly. Interesting. A lady with no heels on her shoes. Um, that would be tricky to heel striking. <laughs>